This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that looks at films and theaters and compares them to well-known and obscure films from days gone by that you might want to check out if you're interested in the subject matter. And speaking of which, this week you might want to check your windows and lock all your doors because we're looking at the world of creepy, crawly serial killers. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald. My name's Karsten Knox. I am a film writer. I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris, and you can find that at halifaxbloggers.ca. So strap in. We're going to look at uh, the new cinematic experience, The Snowman, and also a new Netflix series produced by creep master David Fincher called Mindhunter. So we'll be right back after this. So serial killer movies have gotten really popular in the last 20, 25 years. I think since Silence of the Lambs went off like a bomb in popular culture, uh, the the film was a massive commercial hit and uh, won five Academy Awards, all the big ones, acting, directing, picture. And uh, it made Anthony Hopkins, Hannibal Lecter, kind of an icon. Uh, And of course, more recently, No Country for Old Men won Best Picture. And it's a biggie. And I, I gathered that... Anton Chigurh is very much the model of a psychopathic personality from <laughs> that, right. that film. So, so uh, you know, that's interesting stuff. I think most people know those films. Um, it seems to me, having watched a few of them and preparing, preparing for this podcast, that uh, they're either about the killer and his motivations, usually a him, um, or it's about the hunt for the killer. It's the procedural element. And I think that's those are the ones that are the best, the ones where there's some some obsessed law person trying to you know, catch these people in the act or, or stop them before they kill more people. Um, but there's also a lot of opportunity here for an understanding of what makes people kill and uh, and even maybe a little bit of empathy for them occasionally, depending on the film. Uh, the, the Probably the best serial killer story recent years for me was the first season of True Detective, which I really liked. I also liked uh, David Fincher's uh, American remake of the... Uh, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and the Swedish films, for mm-hmm. that matter. Uh, but we'll get to Fincher in a little bit. Sure. Um, I, I would uh, split this genre from slasher movies. Uh, I think, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is technically a serial killer movie, but I, I and, you know, I just think that's a kind of different kind of genre. It's, that steers really into horror, specifically. Um, I think that Psycho basically, you know, created that whole branch of uh of horror and uh, and it's a little different than the movies that we've watched. Well, it's it's funny you mentioned Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the same breath because they're basically inspired by the same case, and that's the notorious Ed Gein uh, of I believe Plainfield, Wisconsin. I think is where he was from, and uh, you know he was famous for uh, killing his uh, killing some neighbors. I think uh, his his mother died, and I think he basically did taxidermy on her. I don't think he killed his mother. I yeah. think maybe he dug her up, perhaps. Uh, so he dug up some people. And I think he may have committed at least one murder, I think, of a shop girl. And then, uh, you know, had committed acts of cannibalism and taxidermy. And I'm always and amazed, kind of Stephen, weird. how, how <laughs> where you get this information from. Like, I didn't know anything about this guy. And you've got this, like, stored in your head. Well, it was it was a big case, uh, I guess, in the mid-50s. I, I, I feel bad that I don't have the exact uh, dates or anything like that. But I, the fact that I remember it was Plainfield, Wisconsin, I guess. Mm. It's just the Midwest has that kind of weird, creepy fascination. Yeah, yeah um, well, there's the Charlie Starkweather. I remember that one. And yeah. that, of course, uh, there was Badlands. Badlands. That, that Terrence Malick film that was sort of adapted from that 
that story. But uh, but yeah, I, I, you're right. The Midwest does have a fair number of these, don't they? Yeah, and Ed, Ed Gein was kind of like ground zero. People were fascinated with this case, but it was like, how do you turn it into popular entertainment back in, in those days? And, and so Hitchcock got writer Robert Block to kind of come up with a sort of very loose adaptation. Obviously, you had... So you had, um, you know, Norman Bates played by Anthony Perkins, who basically has his mother <laughs> turned into taxidermy. Um, spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> and but, but it kind of it also was inspiration for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There was a very uh, literal version of the story told in a movie that Bob Clark produced called Deranged, uh, which uh, I think it was shot in Canada, but it starred the great Roberts Blossom, a great character actor. He's in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but he played. A pretty much an Ed Gein character. They changed the name, but uh, the the facts of the story pretty much inform the story in that movie. And that's a fascinating sort of low-budget look at it. Huh. And there, there's been other, I think there's been more sort of straight-up just Ed Gein movies as well. But it's, it, I think there's at least five or six feature films that have come out of this one bizarre story. Uh-huh. Um, you know, uh, there's probably going to be more to come down the road. I think there was another film called like Three on a Meat Hook. <laughs> which came out like just before Texas Chainsaw Massacre, some early 70s exploitation film. With a title like that, yeah, it yeah, have to be. Exactly. So, uh, and that's kind of where I think the general public started to clue in to these, you know, these rampage or spree killers, whatever people were calling them at the time. Well, on Mindhunter, they're, of course, uh, we already talked about this, but the, the, they, uh, they were struggling to come up with a name for this very specific kind of of, uh, of killer and psychological profile. Uh, and then Richard Speck came along in the 60s, and that was a famous case where he killed a number of nurses in, in the course of a one-night kind of drunken spree. And, uh, you know, th- this kind of case came to light more and more, especially as, uh, you know, d- detecting uh, science became more sophisticated and several unrelated murders could be tied to one suspect. So... Uh, and all these films tend to go into that. You know, the the, the public fascination with the real life case cases uh, kind of bleeds over into these films, uh, whether they're based on actual cases or not. And they they provide very dramatic fodder, if, if somewhat terrifying and exploitive. Yeah, and a lot of the killers, of course, they want the attention, so they leave clues or they get in touch with the press or something to that effect. Whether they're based on real life or not, uh, that's often the pattern. Uh, there's some communication between the killer and the the people trying to catch them, and that makes for some pretty great suspense. Yeah, I feel like they were watching the Riddler on Batman when they were kids or something, <laughs> and that, that that idea of leaving, you know, taunting law enforcement. I mean, that that's and that gets into the whole. I I mean, I'm you know, I never took a course in psychology, but that whole idea of uh, serial killers being sociopaths and narcissists, and uh, you know the these characters all sort of hover around the same nucleus of, of uh, psychological profiles and that they've, you know, there's something wrong with their wiring and that they, they have no empathy or human emotion, but if they're a sociopath, they can imitate emotion so they can pretend to be emotive when mm-hmm. they're actually not. And, uh, you know, whereas uh, psychopathy is more just acting out and acting on these kind of impulses. Uh, and, you know, there's somewhere there's some gray area in between where maybe you get some from column A and some from column B. And, uh, you know, some of these films tackle these subjects very well and some of them do not. And I guess right. that's I a guess good that, segue. And I guess that brings us to the snowman. <laughs> the snowman, which fascinated me. And I think I liked it more than you did, Stephen, uh, by virtue of 
Okay, so you've got this great filmmaker, Thomas Alfredson, who gave us a great vampire movie a few years yes. ago, and then went on to do Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. So you know he, he can make really, um, he can handle dense, challenging material, and lots of big cast. Yes, uh, you've and got, good genre and movies. And good genre movies, yeah. And then you've got, based on a novel by Joe Nesbo, by all regards, uh, accounts a, a quality uh, thriller. Uh, you've got a, a terrific cast, and yet it just doesn't work. It doesn't hold together. <laughs> and it's it's so full of of um, logic problems. Oh, you've got uh, you've got Martin Scorsese's editor working on it. Yes, uh, Scorsese produced it. Well, uh, sorry, her, her, the editor is uh, Thelma Schoonmaker. Schoonmaker. Yeah. Um, Schoonmacher. Macher. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's basically the story. Roughly, is this Harry Hole, uh, played by Michael Fassbender. He's an alcoholic Norwegian police investigator. So this is one of those films where English-speaking actors from around the world affect accents, Norwegian accents, uh, which or some sl- of which work yeah, and some don't. Appro- approximations of them, and of yeah. course, in the book, it's it's actually it's actually pronounced his last name is pronounced Hole, right? But. Because nobody bothered to translate properly or whatever. In or the something. film, he's Harry Hole, yeah. just whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, so this is a little like Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, or, or I was thinking about um, A Most Wanted Man with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman as another movie set in Germany, all these English actors, right. American Brits, uh, acting opposite Germans speaking English, and then they have the authentic accent, but no one quite matches up. Anyway, uh, it's it's a pet peeve of mine. Um, so Harry gets help from another investigator, Katrine, played by Rebecca Ferguson, who's actually Swedish, uh, so her <laughs> accent's authentic, but she's it's it's uh, she's got a very sort of British tone to her her diction. Um, so they're trying to find a killer who de- decapitates his victims. Uh, meanwhile, Harry's also estranged from his girlfriend Raquel, played by Charlotte Gainsbourg, and whose son Oleg he's still close with. And complicating matters is that Raquel is now with a doctor, Matthias, uh, played by Jonas Carlson. And somehow this case is connected with another alcoholic cop back in Bergen <laughs> nine years before. We keep yes. flashing back to these different different eras. Uh, Rafto, played by Val Kilmer, who we have not seen in a while. And he is, he's not an actor who looks well these days. Well, that's probably why we haven't seen him. And from what I gather, he was undergoing treatment for throat cancer. So his stuff is all dubbed possibly by another actor because it doesn't sound like him. I mean, I, I guess if you've had throat cancer treatment, maybe you don't sound like yourself, but it just, it sounds like a completely different person doing yeah. his lines. So that already makes the film seem weird and this scene seems strange. He's not in it much, but he's enough yeah. that you're like, what's happening here? Okay, so you've got that and then you've got uh, J.K. Simmons as an industrialist who has some seedy interests uh, and uh, and then you blink and you'll miss them appearances include Chloe Sevigny yes. twice because she plays two parts she plays <laughs> twins twins amazingly. yeah and I don't really know why but she does uh, because there's an entire subplot that was cut out of this movie that's the suspicion yes <laughs> yes uh, interesting she's in Zodiac which I also watched that's this right. week um, so uh, Toby Jones is in this Adrian Dunbar a great actor who I hadn't seen in a long time and James Darcy another Brit uh, and they all seem a little lost and this is the feeling that you go through this movie. I, I, the reason I'm fascinated by it is because it actually, the production design is terrific. These actors are terrific. Everyone's talented, and yet it just doesn't make sense. It's like someone couldn't stand back from the material and actually piece together enough of a film that made sense. Now, I'm not uh, someone you know who has to be pedantic about everything. I'm okay with a little bit of illogic if the overall film has suspense yeah, or as long as it's or entertaining entertaining at the end of the day but yeah the 
And the director later came out and said 15% of the script didn't get filmed. Right, so they, that might be a real problem. So that, that doesn't help either. No. And on top of that, if you watch the trailer for the film, after like go see the film, maybe not in a theater, maybe catch it on some streaming service or something if you can see without paying for it. Because it is kind of fun to watch and you know just have that complete WTF moment throughout the film like like wait who is that guy what what is his connection to i mean it, you know it, it is i kind of enjoyed it on that level of of just being completely baffled by it you <laughs> yeah, know you know yeah. in a way that doesn't usually happen from a major moment usually you you expect that if a film's going to make it into the theater it's going to have some kind of logic to yeah, it yeah and i expect red herrings in these kinds yeah, exactly. of movies as well but not the kind where you're like Oh, this feels like something that they just forgot to leave in, or they forgot to put, to put the, put the scene, detail. You know, they should just write a card with scene missing and <laughs> yeah. put that in the middle of the film. Yeah. But if you watch the trailer, there are a number of what look like key action scenes in the trailer that are nowhere to be seen in the finished feature, which makes me think, well, maybe they'll put out a director's cut uh, at some point of, of this film. But but major events in the trailer, and I don't even want to say what they are. Um, but but there's a couple of of, of scenes of, of action happening to characters that doesn't ha- didn't happen in the version that we saw in the theater. And we can't blame it on a reel missing or something because obviously, you know, it's a digital projection. They can't lose a reel somewhere uh-huh. between the... Because dist- that's happening. I mean, in the old days of film, I, I remember seeing Buffy the Vampire Slayer and one of the reels was missing. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, like I, uh, Paul Rubens' death scene was nowhere to be seen in the okay. version that I saw. I was like, what? <laughs> it wasn't Paul Rubens in this movie. Uh-huh. And it turns out because the fourth reel had gone gone for a walk somewhere but uh yeah the logic just goes right out the window in this film and uh you know but and it relies on you know when the person who actually is the killer makes his appearance all of a sudden he's no longer acting at all like the character that we'd met earlier in the film like he just all of a sudden he's like a different person all of a sudden it's like oh right i'm supposed to be cuckoo bananas now so yeah there's and, a there's a there's sort of an opening sequence with a boy uh, and uh, and sort of an icy landscape, and yes, I was confused out yes. who the boy was because there's a boy later, and I thought, oh, maybe it's the same boy, but it's not. And you think maybe it's the detective because he seems to have a lot of issues about parenthood and you know his his own dad's failings and trying to be a, a father to this to, to his ex partner's son, who I don't think is his son. No, I don't but, think so. Uh, no. But he still feels sort of connected to the kid, and uh, it's. it's and, and he's just, he's just, uh, he just can't hold it together. Yeah. And, then, and of course, so he's, com- he's, you know, he's clear he's a basket case. It's clear to his superiors that he's a basket case. And yet they still hand over this really crucial case to mm-hmm. him to, 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 to take on, even though it looks like he's barely able to order lunch, let alone <laughs> solve the yeah. major, you know, and considering how few murders there are apparently in, in Norway in any given year, you know, that, that they decide to hand over this very important case to a guy, you know, has trouble tying his shoes, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems, it's all it's, it's all kind of a uh, it it just falls apart. Uh, the, I I think I enjoyed the entertainment value of it a bit more than you did, but uh, but yeah. And then and then on the other side of this whole spectrum of serial killer tales, we both watched Mindhunter, the new series on Netflix, produced by David Fincher, uh, direct four of the episodes of the of the, I think, eight episodes yeah. are directed by him. So this is really a Fincher project. And Fincher has made his name, really, from doing this kind of material. Uh, Seven, of course, is a famous serial killer movie that he directed. And I, I'm a big fan of it, even even though I don't know if it's quite got 
quite as much these days if people like it as much as they did at once. I feel like it's gotten a little in the popular culture. It's not quite as much of a draw as at one time. I think most people have seen it and yeah. know the know the twist, and so that takes <laughs> a lot away from it. <laughs> yeah, and and knowing what actor is involved in that twist might turn people off. As oh well. well, there's that too. Sure, <laughs> given the news of the week. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, he did. He also directed Zodiac, which is which is a movie whose. Uh, whose reputation has grown in recent years. And he was, he did the American, as I mentioned, he did the American uh, Girl of the Dragon Tattoo. Now, Ma- Mindhunter illuminates and fictionalizes a true story of how the FBI behavioral sciences took on a more academic perspective on why people kill other people and how their work sort of seeped into law enforcement and the study of psychopaths. And I think it was a really great series. I, I didn't know the actors that they they chose, so there was sort of like a very, like the lead actors, so these, these two FBI agents, and I... I didn't have any preconceptions about them, so I quite enjoyed their work. Uh, Jonathan Groff as Holden Ford and Holt McLanny McAllany as Bill Tench, uh, and then Anna Torv as Wendy Carr, who is the uh, academic who gets brought in to sort of help with their project. Um, I did know Cotter Smith, though he plays the FBI boss. I've seen him in tons of stuff. Uh, otherwise, I yeah, I, I don't want to say too much about it because it's one of those procedurals and. Uh, based on true stories that I think is really illuminating and um, and it flies by. Uh, and oh my I, God, does it ever? And I think uh, <laughs> I think it's one that uh, that hopefully will get a second season and and they'll just keep going with it. Well, I think they're definitely leading up to a second season and it got nothing but positive raves. I think overall, um, you know, just on social media, some people have a problem with how much of a jerk Holden Ford turns out to be over the course. But, you know, and it's the question of like, is he becoming too obsessed with his, and with his pursuit of these uh, criminals and, and I starting to identify with them to some degree. And I guess that that's sort of it, but maybe that's a little too facile, but he does, you know, his work does seem to be affecting him, although they don't, make it a cliche. It's, it's, no, it's, it's just, just, he starts to, he's losing em- away at him around the edges. Yeah, kind of he thing. loses empathy, I think, for some of the things in his life because he just feels like the end goal for this work is so important and and he just gets a bit smug and self-righteous about it. Yeah. Uh, and then he, then, Like yeah. he's saving the world or something. Yeah, and then there's something happens at the very end that I won't reveal, but it, but there's, he hits a wall, basically. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's uh, but it's a great series, and uh, and I think this kind of material is just perfect for for um, Fincher's sensibilities. You know, he really does enjoy the logical procession of information and people trying to track down some important information. And um, and this is what I really liked about watching Zodiac again. Zodiac, I feel like it's his uh, all the president's men. Like that's what it feels like to me. It's a group of people. It's lots of newsroom stuff trying to track down the truth of who the Zodiac Killer was, an actual killer from the San Francisco Bay Area uh, from the late 60s right through the 70s. Uh, great cast, Robert Downey Jr., Jake Gyllenhaal, Mark Ruffalo, Anthony Edwards in a terrible wig. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, great actor. And, uh, yeah, and a lot of great uh, support as well, um, you know, including Brian Cox, uh, who we'll talk about again a little later in who plays the other Hannibal Lecter right. uh, of film. and uh, But of course, we all yeah. know the Zodiac Killer is really Ted Cruz, so... Uh, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's one of my favorite memes of recent... He's uh, trying, to, trying to nail the Zodiac killings on Ted Cruz. But uh, yeah, if you liked uh, Mindhunter and you're really feeling like you want to do a serial killer uh, fest, Zodiac is really worth revisiting. Boy, it's a gorgeous film. It's a gorgeous film. Uh, you know, Gyllenhaal and... and uh, and uh, Ruffalo are, you know, give some of their best performances. 
I thought. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just so smoothly directed, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, just moving camera and, you know, that overhead shot where they're following the car through the Presidio and, and, you know, so many sequences stand out of my mind and it's, you know, it is genuinely terrifying in mm -hmm. places, you know, where, where, where Hall thinks he's like maybe in places where he might not get out of and, and that kind of thing. And it really does play tricks with your mind. And I guess maybe it helps that, that, you know, Zodiac is based very closely on the real story and, and is, from what I gather is pretty accurate most of the time. Um, and Mindhunter has the same thing. It's, it has, you know, kind of a loose foot in reality. A lot of it is fictional, but it is based on a book by the guy who basically formed the, you know, the profiling unit at, at the FBI when they had no clue about uh, getting into the minds of these people. And, um, you know, I guess, and I guess that character, the Holden Ford character is based on the real guy, Jack, whatever his name is. I can't remember his name of the author. Douglas? D yeah. Mm -hmm. Who also apparently was the basis for Jack Crawford in Silence of the Lambs and right. uh, Red Dragon. Right. Slash Manhunter. So, you know, that that Harris basically based that character on you can on him, see you can so. see the influence in terms of the kind of the storytelling and how they go about their 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 search of uh, trying to understand the the killers and and yeah bringing it to Manhunter which again I'll I'll mention again later but is is probably my favorite serial killer movie uh, I've watched it more than than probably <laughs> any of the other ones I mean I am a huge fan of, of Silence of the Lambs as well but Manhunter has something special so in our look at films about serial killers, psychopaths, sociopaths, uh, whatever you want to call them uh, under this umbrella. Again, if you're a psychologist and you're listening to this, don't don't uh, don't hang us by our own petards. We're we're uh, we're just using the the terminology as pop culture has taught them to us. And um, it seems like ground zero for these films would have to be Fritz Lang's first sound film from uh, I think 1931, and that is the film M. Uh, starring Peter Lorre in uh, really his breakout role before he went to Hollywood and became known as uh, one of the great sort of creepy protagonists of all time in, in horror movies and thrillers and, and so on. But uh, here he gets a prominent uh, lead role as a, a man who is uh, basically a child killer. And I think in the film it's set in Berlin, but it's actually loosely based on a real case uh, uh, of a man named Peter Curtin who was dubbed the Vampire of Dusseldorf in the 1920s in Germany. And, um, you know, that was kind of a, an eye-opening case at the time, uh, you know, this a series of, of child murders. And, uh, you know, Fritz Lang, although at the time I think he denied that his film was based on the case, maybe to deflect criticism from people who thought that was uh, too gruesome um, at the time, but later research has shown that he did actually, you know, talk to investigators and, and so on, and, and psychologists, and, and try to get into the head of this character uh, for the script that he co-wrote with his uh, then-wife, Thea von Harbu, um, to, uh, to craft this character who uh, is, you know, is basically just, just at the, the, the mercy of his own compulsions, basically. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically creates this reign of terror all through Germany, um, or Berlin specifically, that uh, not only gets the police all stirred up, but also the criminal underworld as well. And that's basically the race in this film is between the police and the criminals to try and find this child murderer, um, you know, before he, you know, causes any more harm, but also um, for the criminals because uh, the police crackdown is really cutting into their business <laughs> and, and they really want to have this dealt with so that they can get back to business as normal and, 
in terms of bootlegging and swindling and gambling and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the police crackdown on, on uh, you know, their dragnet to find this killer is also kind of, kind of catching a lot of regular criminals in the in the net. So, uh, so that's that's uh, what we get, and it's it's just a fascinating story with this amazing Peter Lorre performance in the middle of it, but uh, of of these criminals, most of which are actually, they're actually fairly charming for gangsters. Uh, you know, I, I think of the lead criminal in his leather trench coat and sort of fashionable hat. And he's kind of a, kind of a wiseacre and kind of a, a, a joker. And, and, but so are the police, the police are characters as well. And, and, uh, and, and Lang has a lot of great just character actor faces scattered throughout the movie. It's, it's been uh, lovingly restored, uh, in, by, um, by a, the film archive in, uh, I guess, in Munich, but and um, presented in this country, uh, North America, by uh, Criterion Collection, and it looks amazing. Like it just the, the the sharp, clear black and white picture is something to behold. Um, you know, and this is a film that was kind of in the public domain for a long time. I remember watching a terrible, terrible copy on VHS back when I could first get my hands on it. It was actually missing scenes. I think the final scene with the mothers of the murdered children gets lopped off, um, and uh, it's. It's uh, just one of those fascinating films to come out of Germany before, you know, some real monsters uh, took over that country. Uh, and I, I think maybe uh, I think maybe Lang was kind of hinting at what was to come in, to some degree, where perhaps the criminals will be running things uh-huh. more than the uh, the, the uh, forces of law. So it has this kind of forward-looking theme about it, but it also it, it looks like the first film about a kind of modern kind of crime. And uh, it's just it's just fascinating, especially when Peter Lorre, uh, you know, no spoiler, but eventually he gets cornered by the criminals and they have a kind of a kangaroo court. They're going to try them themselves. And he just has this complete and utter breakdown. You know, he starts going on about his rights and everything. And and, uh, you know, it's it's almost like. Well, that Clint Eastwood line, you know, what about the rights of that little girl? You know, from, from, <laughs> Dirty, from Harry. Dirty Harry, yeah. Another serial yeah, killer which, movie. Yeah, which was inspired by the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, Always, yeah. He's the Scorpio Killer. Hmm, yeah. I wonder yeah. what could have inspired that. That's the, <laughs> it's pretty direct. Uh, yeah, I was, this is the first time I'd seen M, and I so enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I really liked how Laurie plays this sort of whistling creep early on whose face we don't see. Like, he's very much a mysterious figure. Uh, a frightening figure. And then we spend all this time with the people trying to catch him. There's this terrific set piece where he's trapped in this building and uh, the criminals who have fa- found him there are, are sort of going floor by floor trying to root him out. Yeah, and just he's, tearing the place apart. And he is doing his best to uh, to stay away from them. And the criminals, of course, realize that they're, they've got a certain amount of time before they're discovered by the cops. So um, they need to find him. And then, as you mentioned, that scene where where uh, Laurie's character is given a chance to speak, and uh, he's like a human emoticon. He just is like all saucer eyes and and wide mouth, and he's and he's you know he actually due to the strength of his performance, I think that you can muster a little bit of pity for him. Uh, just I mean, obviously a very small amount, but but it's it's quite. Uh, an opportunity for him as an actor to try and get to the soul of this character in a way that you wouldn't ex- as ex- have expected that kind of sophistication uh, in, in in a movie necessarily from that era. Uh, you know, he he is he is a monster, but he is a monster who is a slave to his perversions. And I think there is I think I feel like Fritz Lang has some sympathy for him. Yeah, well, Fritz Lang was just really interested in that dark underbelly of of life and. Uh, it's an interesting contrast to a series of films he made prior to that, 
um, about the fiendish super criminal Dr. Mabuza, which oddly enough, the same uh, inspector, the same uh, police inspector in M is also featured in the Mabuza films. Um, and uh, so there's the, like a connected universe of sorts, only it's from like the 1920s and 30s. Uh, and of course, Mabuza is a, is like a super criminal who you know, controls this vast network and, and, you know, has like ultimate power over people around him and almost has like a supernatural presence in the crime world in, in those films. And, uh, it's, and then in this case, you got Peter Laurie, he's the complete opposite. You know, he's at the mercy of his compulsions and has no control over himself. And, you know, is just as much of a monster as Mabuza is, you know, perhaps even more so. Um, and it's, it, the, the film has this, just feels very modern. Uh, it's, it's very, fast, quickly paced, uh, you know, it's using sound in interesting ways. Uh, I know when we watched it, you noted that some sound, some scenes are completely silent. Um, like they didn't add any, like there's any no, incidental sound yeah, or, or, or even, even room noise, like yeah. they're just dead silent as people are running through the streets or combing through this building or what have you. But, uh, it's funny that in, in the extras, they show scenes from the French and English adaptations of the film where they they either redubbed some stuff and refilmed some stuff, some scenes with different actors and kind of these weird hodgepodge versions of M. And I think in the French one, they felt compelled to add sound effects to those scenes. So they're actually, you know, you hear the sound of footsteps when people are running. Mm. Uh, it just was too weird for them to have the, <clears throat> the silent moments. But um, I think Lang meant them to be that way because they're kind of filmed from high, from a high angle and right. they have that kind of almost that eye of God watching down kind of feel. And uh, I'm guessing that's why he wanted those particular scenes to be silent. But, um, you know, obviously the, the, the distributors in other countries felt differently. And it's, it is interesting to, to look at how the film got treated uh, abroad uh, if you have a chance to have a look at the deluxe um, DVD or Blu-ray of this film. But it's, it's a pretty, uh, pretty remarkable document from its time. Now, that kind of leads into uh, the film that I watched uh, just earlier today for about the third time, I think. I'd seen this film a couple times in the past. And it's He Walked by Night. It's um, a film that uh, Anthony Mann worked on in some capacity. He's kind of credited as a co-director. Um, and uh, working with cinematographer John Alton, who uh, they would make a number of, of these kind of very expressionistic film noirs. I guess drawing on the look of the German expressionist filmmakers like Fritz Lang and, and so on from uh, a few years before. But this is uh, 1940s Los Angeles. And uh, so... The, Psychopathic killers, I mean, you know, the, you, they, they weren't really a staple of films in Hollywood, even, even though M made a big impact and, like I say, was dubbed into English and shown around the world and was a famous film and made Peter Lorre a star. Um, I think once the production code came into the, in the States, uh, they couldn't go too far into this kind of subject matter. It was either too grim or, you know, just would... Uh, just uh, offend the sensibilities of a, of a delicate nation or whatever, as, as per the production code, which tried to clamp down on sex and violence and, in Hollywood films in the, uh, the mid-1930s. So, uh, you know, you'd get the occasional mad killer in, in a sort of run-of-the-mill mystery movie, but it would be treated fairly lightly. It wouldn't be treated as, as, with any kind of psychological depth or anything like that. It was just a madman on the loose sort of thing. But, uh, but He Walked by Night is, is, is interesting. It's, it's about... Um, a guy who is definitely fits uh, the sociopath profile. He has no problems uh, killing a cop early in the film uh, when he's asked for some identification. He says he'll show him his papers and pulls out a 
pistol and just kills the guy in cold blood, maybe when he didn't even have to. Uh, and Richard Basehart, you know, who became become better known years later as a TV actor on things like uh, uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and so on. But, he, you know, he's a pretty fine film actor, and, and this is an early role for him as he uh, kind of leads the police on a merry chase around Los Angeles because he seems to be one step ahead of the cops every way. And uh, one of the ways that he outsmarts them as he does these crimes that involve electronics because he's got, you know, they figure out that he, he knows he's, he's in the military and the radio department and had some knowledge of electronic gear and stuff like that. And so he's able to do some surveillance using primitive gear. Um, he's able to escape uh, capture by using the Los Angeles storm sewer system, uh, which uh, is put to very good use in the film when he's making an escape. And also, uh, you know, when the police are kind of closing in on him at the end, there's a great chase sequence at the end. What else did we see that, th- oh, it was them, them, the monster movie. Yes. We, in our, in our, with the ants? With the ants, yeah, that, on our, on our, uh, our insect uh, podcast, we talked about that. And that was one of the, uh, that was a location for the, that film as well. Yeah, and uh, oddly enough, another film I watched recently, uh, Ben, the, the killer rat movie, um, also uses the, uh, the L.A. Storm Sewers to okay. uh, well, I'll say good effect. It's not a great film, but uh, you know, I'd wanted to see it for years. And I finally watched Ben and the film that preceded it, Willard. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and of course, not a great film to watch when you have a rodent problem in your own home. But uh, but anyway, it was, you know, they're they're kind of classics of the time, and and uh, uh, and they have some interesting casting from from that period. But uh, they're not great. But if you don't like rats, yeah, stay away from those films. <laughs> but in the second film, the little kid who's got the super intelligent rat is always going into the sewers. And, and then it made me think of It, of course, in which uh, Pennywise, the clown, lives in the sewers. Um, but apparently Los Angeles has this impressive, like almost like Paris, you know, with the famous sewers of Paris. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Los Angeles has these sewers that you can drive a truck through, apparently. And and they, they empty out into those base the basins um, and those the Los Angeles the, River the drain away yeah, yeah exactly like where you have the chase scene from Terminator Two and Greece drag strip in Greece exactly yeah, so yeah. Um, so but it was kind of a new thing for people to see I guess in, in he walked by night so it's 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 very fast paced it's mm-hmm. less than eighty minutes long and uh, you know you've got a great villain in Baseheart because he's super intelligent and and uh, also you know super psycho and. Uh, and the, and the cops are just kind of getting up to speed with the psychology of it. And also, um, it's one of the first films to introduce uh, a lot of forensic science. And you've got Jack Webb, famous from Dragnet, as a Sergeant Friday from Drag- Dragnet. He shows up as this fairly chipper uh, forensic scientist who's basically giving them all the analysis of the clues that they need to find this guy. And uh, But he's, he's like portrayed as the guy who maybe he loves his work a little too much. And uh, which is kind of something that would come up in like CSI and and other films where you have the, the lab tech who's like a little gruesomely attached to uh, to uh, solving these crimes, uh, and and that's an interesting aspect. Especially to see Jack Webb actually like laugh and smile, you know, when he's known as playing the doer Sergeant Friday. Um, and clearly, this film and its kind of procedural approach to solving the crime is something that he'd drawn in his later work. So um, he walked by night is is a is a great. Uh, I mean, it's it's a film noir, but it feels like maybe a little more modern than some of its contemporary films and uh, is worth checking out. It, it was public domain for a while, so you might be able to find it, you know, you might be able to find a free download online fairly easily. Um, but there are official versions that look a lot better out there that you might want to check as well. Very good. Uh, shall we talk about Peeping Tom? Sure. Well, yeah, the, the, um, the Peeping Tom, uh, of course, is a British film. 
And uh, they didn't have some of the same censorship uh, restraints that American filmmakers did. Even even into the late 50s, the production code really wouldn't completely fall apart until the late 60s. Um, but in England, I think there was a little more leeway. And so Michael Powell took advantage of that to make a very lurid, I mean, it's Technicolor, you know, as opposed to Psycho, which is a film that came out shortly after uh, Hitchcock's Psycho, which of course was a huge hit. Uh, Peeping Tom, on the other hand, it was in lurid color. Um, you know, he kills with a movie camera that has a sword built into the tripod. Um, his victims are all female. And uh, I think uh, the film repulsed a lot of Yeah, apparently uh, Powell did not uh, recover his career after this film, which, which is one of those real tragedies because not only was he a great filmmaker from his era, but uh, uh, this is a really fascinating movie. I feel like having watched M and then... Uh, you know, Manhunter being a popular film of mine uh, in terms of my uh, being a fan of, of these kinds of movies. Uh, this is like the the bridge between those two. You've got this soft Germanic uh, accented uh, uh, actor, Carl Heinzbohm, who plays the, the killer. And he sounds a bit like Peter Lorre, uh, you know, and you've got him. So that's the M connection. But then there are scenes here that really reminded me a lot of Manhunter. There's a, a oh, woman yeah. who's blind and uh, she gets in, there's a scene with her and the uh, and the killer and he's watching films, which of course, uh, some of his own films that he's shot, he's obsessed with documenting things. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a scene very similar to what uh, Thomas Harris wrote and then was reproduced in, in Manhunter. Um, yeah, I really liked uh, Peeping Tom. I love the sort of London in the 60s vibe and the costumes and the look of it. I mean, the, co the color is incredible. Um, and I, I really thought as the sort of roster of serial killer movies, uh, this one has a real interesting perspective. It isn't about the, uh, the people who are hunting him, though he is being hunted by uh, Jack Watson, one of my favorite uh, British <laughs> actors of the era, uh, plays the detective who's looking for him. It's more about this man and his problems and the roots of his problems and then his relationship with women. Um, and uh, it's also, I think, uh, I think maybe part of the reason the film was not welcomed at the time is that you, you feel that that it, it is, uh, you know, that, that you are, the voyeurism is being, impl we're implicated as an audience member watching all this because we like to watch and it's, it's about that, certainly. It's about sadism too, but you, you do feel like, okay, this is getting a little uncomfortable because we're sitting here as, as witnesses to this. Well, that's it. It's, it's the voyeuristic aspect of the film, I think is what subconsciously creeped a lot of people out. And the fact that, you know, he just, you know, he, he commits his murders while he's looking through the viewfinder, so he's completely disconnected from what he's doing, and his brain just kind of shuts off the fact that, you know, what he's doing is a horrible, you know, unpardonable crime. And uh, and so the way that Powell filmed it, of course, makes the viewer feel complicit in what's happening on the screen, and that, and that uh, I think that's the extra element that kind of pushes the film over the edge, because, of course, it's, you know, it is from the land of Jack the Ripper and Dr. Crippen, and, I mean, you know, that's... You know, you know the basement of Madame Tussauds and and so on. Like, I mean, there is this British fascination with horrible, horrible crimes. Actually, comes up in uh, the second season of uh, Penny Dreadful, where of course there's a whole subplot set in a in a you know chamber of terrors in a wax museum. Um, but this was just a little too close for comfort, especially as the film does sort of show some sympathy for its subject, because of course he was tormented by his father, who was like a B.F. Skinner esque psychologist. Um, and the film, I think, does a better job with the psychology of the character and, and kind of 
incorporating it into the plot than Psycho does, where you have that lengthy explanation at the end of the film. This film, uh, I think, is a lot smoother in terms of how it incorporates that into the storytelling. Um, and, but uh, that doesn't, uh, I guess I didn't let Powell off the hook with uh, critics and, and viewers at the time. So it seems like every you know decade has a few of these serial killer movies, more more prominent now than certainly they were. But uh, I have seen Targets from 1967, the uh, uh, Peter Bogdanovich film. Was it his first feature or, or close to his first feature? It was, he had done some work for Corman, for Roger Corman, where he'd taken footage from, I think they took some special effects footage from some Russian uh <laughs> some Russian science fiction that movies. That sounds about right. And then incorporated <laughs> into a whole new film. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, I think for the most part, he considers this his directorial debut. I think that was kind of like sort of hack work. Yeah. This is, this is pretty well-regarded film about a, uh, a sniper killing people and, and uh, Boris Karloff playing uh, a former movie star. It's been a while since I've seen it, but maybe you can get into the plot a little bit. Well, it's uh, it, it basically has two parallel storylines that, um, you know, intersect a little bit at the start and then, of course, come to a big climax at the end at a big, uh, at a big film premiere at a drive-in, basically. Um, where, uh, I, on the one hand, we have a, a young man who, uh, you know, apparently was in the military and possibly was in Vietnam. They leave it a little bit vague. Um, and, uh, you know, he's fascinated with firearms. They, early on in the film, they show his trunk full of just rifles and handguns and and uh, ammunition, and you know, it doesn't even have any automatic weapons. It's just rifles, shotguns, and and handguns. Uh, we haven't even got up to semi-automatic weapons or anything like that. Um, and uh, and then on the flip side, you've got uh, Boris Karloff as a very thinly veiled version of himself as a movie star named Orlock, who famously was, you know, in a lot of horror films, and now is at the twilight of his career. Um, and uh, in the film, expresses a lot of. Uh, regrets about how his career went and, you know, wishes he'd done more serious dramatic work and, you know, kind of just wishes he could go retire and sit in the garden and check the cricket scores and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously Karloff playing a loose version of himself. Um, you know, other people who knew him say that he actually didn't, you know, had a lot of uh, regard for most of the horror filmmaking that he'd done, you know, that certainly... You know, kept uh, kept the bills being paid, but but he also enjoyed doing it, and you know didn't necessarily talk down, you know, the Frankenstein movies or what have you, um, you know, or even the later Corman films that he did, which are a lot of fun today. You know, which he may have seen as just picking up a check, but he puts a lot into those movies uh, at the time. But uh, so so basically, you've got the man responsible for a lot of fantasy horror, uh, you know, and portraying a, uh, you know, a monster on the big screen. And then you've got this young man who takes his, uh, his weaponized fantasy into the real world when he kills members of his family and then starts randomly shooting uh, motorists on a California freeway from the top of an oil tower. And, uh, and then he moves on to a drive-in where uh, his killing spree uh, kind of intersects with this film premiere with, uh, with Orlock in attendance. So... It's uh, it's pretty matter of fact. It doesn't it doesn't try to explain its main character. He, you know, it just shows him slowly getting to the point where he he wants to uh, just wants to hunt humans basically. And um, 
you know, it's based on a couple of different things. There was a Charles Whitman, who was the, uh, the uh, tower sniper in Austin, Texas. Uh, also profiled in the great documentary, The Tower, which is currently on Netflix. Um, but there was also a freeway killer. It was a teenager, a 16-year-old, who did something very similar to what uh, the character in Targets does, but shooting uh, people from a, from a vantage point near a California freeway. So it's, it's based on a couple of uh, cases that were still very fresh in people's minds. Uh, you know, if you think back to when Targets came out, the, the, the things that inspired it were, you know, the ink was barely dry on the newspaper. Um, you know, these, these were cases that were very much in people's minds, and I think that maybe what, what makes it so horrific to think about the fact that people are going to see a movie based on terrible events that just happened you know, within the last little while. Um, it probably follows on the heels of In Cold Blood pretty quickly, the, the Richard Brooks film about a couple of uh, guys who just, I think, initially just want to commit a robbery but end up, uh, you know, killing a family and being the subject of a police manhunt uh, based on the book by Truman Capote, based on a real-life case. Uh, so this is a, the kind of thing that's just sort of coming into the general consciousness, I think, Um you know, the, the Manson murders hadn't happened yet, but, uh, you know, there's this feeling of the 1960s turning very, very sour thanks to uh-huh. Vietnam and, and the way politics were going and, uh, and, and just the country kind of, uh, turning in on itself. So, so targets comes along at a, at a very timely time. Um, the story is very lean, uh, you know, it just moves along at a very brisk pace. Bogdanovich is kind of amusing playing a character, <laughs> playing a director, basically based sort of on himself. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's it's a pretty terrifying movie even today. You know when you when you 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 see the ripples of of of, of gun culture and uh, that have kind of caught the United States in this terrible grip. And it, you know you can't watch this film, especially when he's like just shooting people at a drive-in, and not think about the recent shootings in Las Vegas. Uh, you know, which of course is on a much grander scale because of the the weaponry involved and that kind of thing. But but it, it's it's almost like it's like well you know the the seeds were there you know here we, we all along in, in that kind of behavior, and uh, and targets is still a pretty uh, pretty vital film for that. Yeah, I uh, I have pretty good memories of it though they aren't nearly as defined as yours and uh, and I but I definitely recommend people watch it. I really remember enjoying it a lot. Um, just the look of the film and the feeling of location as well and and uh, which is my segue into the next film we should talk about, which is Vengeance is Mine from 1979, a Japanese serial killer movie, which I think is much less. Uh, popular genre in Japan uh, is that's the feeling I get anyway. I, I'm I don't know certainly don't know the history of of the genre there entirely, but this feels like a different kind of film. Um, it's uh, I really enjoyed the sense of 1970s Japan in it. Lots of exterior locations and uh, and I also really enjoyed the way the structure of the film is based. We we meet the killer basically. I gather it's based on a true story. Yes, uh, it's based on uh, Akira. Nishiguchi was the uh, the actual serial killer involved. When we meet the 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 gentleman in question in the film, he's in sort of in the back of a of a police car being taken to jail and talking with the police officers about you know about how his life is about over and he's never going to live very long and and uh, he has this sort of casual cruelty about him. Uh, and then we have these series of staggered flashbacks to 
we we meet the killer. Uh, we see it. We see him. The discovery of the bodies of of two of his killings, and then we flash back a little earlier that same day to where the killer meets these two people that he kills, and then we see the killings, <laughs> and then we flash in the middle of all this. We flash into a, a little later when the killer is on a train and he is watching the discovery of the bodies from a distance while he is basically making his getaway. And I really love that. I loved this like this strange. Uh, structure that uh, felt quite unusual, but also really clever. Like, I never felt like I was confused about where we were or what was going on. Um, And then it becomes about this weird character and his strange relationships with his father, with his wife. Uh, He has this this strong sex drive. He, he hires prostitutes and he has a relationship with them. And uh, you're never really sure where when he's going to kill again. And there, there's a lot of suspense involved in that. But we don't... It's not... All the time isn't spent with him. We're actually spending time with this ensemble cast and seeing it from various perspectives. Uh, yeah, I, I quite liked it. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of unique in that uh, usually the the serial killer is portrayed as this kind of lone wolf on the hunt kind of thing. And in this case, this guy he's got a family. He's got you know parents and a, and a wife, and he's running this brothel. And 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 uh, you know he he actually had you know. I think that's one of the problems with a lot of the because of course after Silence of the Lambs are like a floodgates open and it seemed like every week there was a new serial killer movie. And they're all basically like weird creeps who live in their basement plotting their next crime kind of thing. Whereas here he's, he's kind of like this. He sees himself. Uh, I think Enokizu uh, is the name of the character, the fictional version in Vengeance's Mind, and he kind of sees himself as a kind of Nietzschean Ubermensch, you know feeling like he's beyond the reach of the law, you know, if he just stays one step ahead of the game. And, 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 and I think that might actually, you know, sort of be a lot closer to what, you know, a real life uh, serial murderer might imagine themselves as, you know, by, by committing unrelated murders um, and uh, not, uh, you know, not leaving clues and, and, you know, killing without motive and all that kind of thing. It's, uh, it seems like it would have been really fresh when this film came out in 1979 and, and fairly terrifying. Uh, you know, again, like you say, it's not the sort of thing that happened in Japan a lot. You know, their crime rate is a lot lower. It's not something that they're necessarily obsessed with. Um, so this film would have come out of the blue and it would, you know, attack this subject matter in a way that uh, was pretty unique at that time, you know, on either side of the Pacific ocean really. But, uh, you know, the, the film just draws you in with this really interestingly sketched out character and it's really bleak worldview. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think that's a trademark for the director Shohei Imamura, um, you know, that 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 comes up in his other films. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, you know, I've watched this film twice now, and it, it just it never fails to kind of shock and amaze me. Yeah, and I was also impressed with you know his relationship with his family. So later on, when he is the you know the jig is up, and he has been he has been revealed to be this infamous killer. It, it, it reflects badly on his family and there is a lot of shame because yes. they're, his name, you know, his father's talking about how he can't, you know, it's, it's, it's that sense of like family honor has been besmirched and now it's like the damage has been done very personally to his father's uh, honor. Uh, which is something that speaks to the way Japanese culture works a little differently than maybe it would be in, in the United States or elsewhere, which is what some, one of the things I think makes the film really, really different. Um, but uh, I know we are coming, we're soon to, to conclude our chat uh, here about serial killer movies, and I want to make sure that I get in a little time to talk about my favorite serial killer movie. I mentioned it earlier, uh, Manhunter 
from 1986. Michael Mann, one of my favorite filmmakers over the last 30 years or so. Uh, this is a, the first adaptation of a Robert Harris novel uh, called Red Dragon, which would be remade uh, later. <laughs> Once the Silence of the Lambs became such a hit, they made Hannibal, uh, and then they made Red Dragon, which was actually a prequel uh, at that time. Yeah, with but, Anthony uh, Hopkins this time around, instead yeah, of yeah. Brian Cox in Manhunter. Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, this is an interesting film. Uh, it's... In some ways, it's a little dated looking. Um, not only is the budget nowhere near some of those other films that came later, but it's uh, it's 1986, and Michael Mann was a filmmaker who who had had some success with his series Miami Vice on TV, but uh, his style was very very 80s in some way in the look of the film and oh, yeah. uh, and some of that you know you can I guess it depends on your appetite for that kind of thing I really like it and I enjoy a lot of the synthesizers on the soundtrack and the the use of pop music and the and the uh, the blue wash in the color but uh, what I think really has made the film timeless is the uh, the way in which it approaches this subject of of um, you know a killer and an FBI profiler played by William Peterson who is out, he's basically retired, but he, he is, his old boss asks him, uh, Jack Crawford asks him to come back and track down a serial killer they're calling the Tooth Fairy, um, and uh, who's killing families on the lunar cycle. Uh, and in order to get the old feeling back, um, Will Graham goes and spends a little time with the man he previously caught, named Hannibal Lecter, who's a brilliant brilliant intellectual uh, who also happened to like to eat people. And uh, and he's played by the excellent Brian Cox, who now works all the time. But, but uh, yeah, he was, I think, kind of an unknown then. At that time, yeah. Yeah, but boy, is it fun to go back and watch it and think about the way Anthony Hopkins approached that character, who's a much bigger part of Silence of the Lambs. He's his he's, he's prominent role there. But in um, Manhunter, he's only in two or three scenes, but uh, he has sort of cast a shadow over the rest of the film, this this character. And uh, it's a really terrific film. I just watched it again maybe a month ago, and uh, it still holds up in the performances and in the writing and in the just this sense of, um, of suspense as they get closer and closer to the killer. And it looks like they're not going to get him before the next full moon. And then they get a key bit of information uh, and they go and they find him, and uh, and it's yeah, it's super exciting, and and its connection with Mindhunter, I think, is very direct. You can see there's a lot of um, in terms of the way the information is shared between people in the FBI. You can really see how how both uh, how that 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 organization really works, and both both uh, the the TV series and the film uh, do it uh, make it really fascinating. Yeah, Man- Manhunter is a, is a fascinating film. I mean, it, as much for what it uh, it lost when it got pared down by uh, by the uh, producers, as as what's in the version that we have. I mean, the, the reason it's not called Red Dragon is because a they took out all the scenes involving the Red Dragon, which uh, was the the painting by Blake that the uh, the Tooth Fairy, uh, who's chillingly played by Tom Noonan, um, uh, he's obsessed with with Blake and that painting in particular. And uh, he's uh, he even has a tattooed on his back, um, or at least he did in the footage. Like, like I'm trying to even remember how much of that remains. I, I think they managed to salvage some of it from from the editing room floor at some point. But the, the released version of Manhunter doesn't include any of that. I don't think, even though it was, it was kind of like a key theme in the book, obviously given its title, and the fact that it was taken out of the movie, I think you lose a lot of his motivation and mm-hmm. you know 
you know, he sees himself as becoming this greater being through his crimes. And, and, and that kind of gets cut away a little bit. So it doesn't, you know, so a lot of what's in the, the finished version, I think you can see a longer cut of it now that has a little more of that background. But um, some of his uh, rationale gets got sliced and diced in the uh, the original theatrical cut. So it's nice that we can at least see some of that material. Although some of it was tossed, yeah, yeah. and uh, is, is is you know only a few stills remain, which is is weird because it's you know you, you think of it as being a fairly recent film, and yet the fact that there's a lot of lost footage from it that kind of explains the the killer. It's just it's just kind of weird to imagine. But but what's there is still pretty powerful, and and Peterson is is very intense as. Uh, as Will Graham. Um, mm-hmm. Very uh, bow-legged actor, but he has yes. a certain kind of swagger that really works. And of course, he would uh, get fame later on uh, on CSI, uh, you know, playing a very kind of similar kind of investigator. But uh, Where he does, in one episode, he gets goes up against Tom Noonan again. From, oh yeah, I didn't know there's that. There's one episode, it's worth seeing, Tom Noonan I think plays a magician who's also fairly creepy as Tom Noonan is wont to be. And, right. And it's worth watching it just to see the two of them square off again. But um, Yeah, and uh, and Joan Allen is really good as the woman who works in the same office that uh, the killer works in, uh, a photo lab, and she's blind, and, uh, and you see a little bit of their relationship to one another. And uh, there's a wonderful scene where he takes her to, uh, to visit a, uh, a vet who is... Uh, who has a tiger who's getting a tooth removed and <laughs> on the table. And it's, uh, it's yeah, I remember this from the book because I read the book. Yes. And uh, it's an amazingly done scene. And, and uh, Joan Allen just really sells it. She's so good in that role. So that's uh, Lends Me Your Ears Look at uh, Serial Killer Movies, uh, which has been an interesting, if slightly dark and frightening uh, journey into cinema's past of, of murders. We are on Twitter, if you want to reach out to us. My Twitter handle is Flaw in the Iris. It's, uh, it's, I named it after my, my uh, blog. And I'm on Twitter at, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. We're also reachable on Facebook, and uh, our email is lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. I haven't actually checked the email in a long time. <laughs> yeah, we, should, we should get into that. <laughs> probably, we should probably do that. If, you're, if you've emailed us and uh, we, you haven't heard back, it, it might be because we've uh, dropped the ball a little bit on that. Uh, we also have a Patreon account if you'd like to send us some shekels and give us some support for our, our uh, project here. Uh, we are found on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can please sus- subscribe to us on iTunes and write a positive review if you're, if you're finding us there. Um, this podcast is produced by the good people at Village Sound. Thank you very much for that. Uh, and it is uh, broadcast on CKDU every second Tuesday at 5.30. So if you're listening to us there, uh, many thanks to CKDU. And I want to say thanks to Stephen Cook here for hosting the, the recent episodes of this this uh, this podcast at the the Podcast Parrot Palace here uh, in North, North End Halifax while you've been recuperating. Well, it's been an honor, and the parrots love it too. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 